You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I am Sarah Custer, the editor of Campus and your host. But you won't be hearing much from me in this episode because we've asked some of our campus contributors to share their advice on mentoring and supervision. These relationships can make or break academic careers, so getting them right is crucial. In this episode, you'll hear advice on how to choose a mentor, how to be a good mentor, and how to lay the ground rules for these relationships so that everyone gets what they need from them. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Eve Riskin. I'm a professor of electrical and computer engineering and dean of undergrad education at the Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey. To be a mentor, first of all, you really should be someone who enjoys seeing other people succeed. You should be able to be really proud of your students and to be genuinely thrilled when things go well for them. That's not everybody. Something else that's important in my opinion as a mentor is to learn to spot students who are looking for an opportunity who may not have had the privilege that some of our students have, but show a willingness to work hard and a real eagerness um, and appreciation for support you could provide to them. It's possible that the student who comes across as the most confident may not be the student who could do the most. So I always try to find students where I really see a, a, a talent and a spark, but perhaps they have a bit of self-doubt. It could be because they are in a system that wasn't designed for them. Um, and I like to try and get to know them and see how can I help and help them understand that they may be facing extra challenges when you're in a system that wasn't designed for you and that's normal and yet you can still succeed. Sometimes I really like to share some of the struggles I had because, you know, at this very senior time in my career to a student, it may look like I've had an easy time. And so I like to explain that when I was their age, I also struggled. I also lacked confidence. I found it difficult. And yet I worked hard and I had some wonderful mentors who gave me an opportunity. One was Bob Gray, who was my PhD mentor. Another was someone named Victor Zhu, who was the first person who suggested I go to graduate school. Um, and having these mentors made a huge difference to me. I'd probably not be here without them. Lastly, I recommend that you thank your mentors. If you know years later you find yourself in a position where you're doing well, send your mentors an email. Tell them you're doing well. Thank them. They're going to really appreciate it. Hello, I'm Monica Foster, and I'm the head of Department of Marketing Operations and Systems at Northumbria University. I'm a qualified coach and mentor, and also enjoy being mentored and coached myself. Over the years, I've had quite a few mentors who all developed me, but today I would like to tell you about the most influential mentor I had. It was an international, mature, postgraduate student from Nigeria who mentored me most recently in reverse mentoring. For those of you who have not heard about reverse mentoring, it comes from industry and it typically involves a junior staff member mentoring an experienced colleague to share fresh insights and to enhance the leadership skills. Reverse mentoring with students can be very beneficial for academics, including senior leaders, to truly embrace student perspective and to pass on some institutional knowledge to the eyes of the students. 
It can be challenging as your students can bring very different perspectives and can seriously challenge your views. The reason this was my most influential mentor was because not only she shared with me a lot of institutional knowledge through the eyes of the student, but it also surprisingly stretched me as an academic and a leader and made me remind myself about my strengths. When we started the mentoring relationship, my mentor had been a student for several months. She already knew the university, the program, how things worked. I was new to the university and as a head of department, keen to understand how students engage with the university and what we can do to enhance their experience. For me, the insights into how mature international students form a relationship with the university, how they apply their skills and knowledge to progress their master's degree was invaluable. The student was also able to gain some useful insights into leading a complex organization. Um, at the time of our relationship, she was writing up her dissertation and she told me that she learned how to be more confident about questioning things, to explore the meanings more deeply and to be more confident about own skills and knowledge. So why was this the most influential mentor for me? Not only because of institutional knowledge, not only because of the student perspective, it was also because it really stretched me as a leader. Seeing how busy I was, often tired, she challenged me and asked me how I, why was I a senior leader? She made me stop and articulate the very reasons why I do what I do, refreshing my perspective and making me examine my strengths. At the time, I was working on a series of guest lectures on female leadership. I wasn't sure if I have enough to offer, to share, why me? Our sessions made me articulate the reasons I do the guest lectures and see my strengths very clearly. So my tip would be to try some reverse mentoring with a student. Stick to your objectives, but be open to be challenged. It may take you to new conclusions and make you even see yourself as an academic or a leader in a new light. But above all, enjoy the experience. Hi, everybody. My name is John McNaughton, and I am an associate professor and associate department chair here at Texas Tech University. And I am also the faculty senate president this year. And so as you can imagine, I've had a lot of conversations with people about mentoring. And I want to talk about this from two perspectives. So one, I have had some great mentors. And so I want to just share two thoughts on what I think it takes to be a great mentee, somebody that's willing to learn. Um, and then I want to just talk about a couple of things that I think when you're being a mentor, you really need to consider. And so when it comes to being meant to being the mentee and getting mentored, I think the first thing is we need to remember that we all have something to learn and something to gain, um, regardless of if this is a person that we're trying to learn from that's been in the organization a long time, been in the profession a long time, or if they're just new to the profession. We all have something to learn from each other. Um, sometimes those new perspectives can be the most valuable because they see things with new light and new eyes. And so that's the first thing is be open to being mentored from all different angles and from a lot of different people. The second thing is make sure you're keeping track of some of that mentoring. Take some notes on some of the things that you learn. Write down some of the things that, that you want to implement into your leadership and into your work. Um, I remember I had a great mentor who, when I was looking at work and I never thought I was going to be a faculty member. And he said, well, he said, you should at least make sure that you're qualified to do whatever jobs are available in our field. 
And so it pushed me to, to do some publications and to engage in that research aspect of the work that I wasn't planning. And I was so grateful for that. When it comes to being a mentor, the first thing I think we also need to think about is that most people care more about the relationship than what we actually say. And so sometimes we get so focused on the words, the things coming out of our mouth that we forget that we're people and these are people. And so make sure that the focus is first on the relationship. And then the second thing is, if you are a mentor, it shouldn't be as important to us that somebody does exactly what we say. It should be important to us that they wanted to have the conversation. And so don't stop being somebody's mentor just because they didn't, you know, do exactly what you told them would be the way to handle a situation. Sometimes when they don't and things don't go well, that's when they need a mentor the most, right? And so those are just some of my thoughts on being a mentee and being a mentor. I hope that's helpful. And I hope that you, you know, as you continue to work through this, you find some great ideas and insights that help you in your leadership journey. Hi, my name is Sue McKenna and I am a Professor of Higher Education and the Director of Postgraduate Studies at Rhodes University in South Africa. I have been lucky enough to mentor several emerging researchers, either within my role as their formal PhD supervisor or as a colleague and friend. I think the ideal mentor provides you with a sounding board around tough decisions, but they don't make those decisions for you. What you're really looking for is someone who has been there, done that, and who can point out the potholes and hurdles along the way that you might have missed. So much of academia is not written down or made explicit. Sometimes you need advice on whether to submit an abstract to a particular conference or to take up an invitation to join a particular committee. Having an established academic as a mentor can be an enormously powerful resource and support. But there are a great many different ways to be an academic and to build a research career. So you need to be wary of simply implementing the advice from your mentor as if it was a set of instructions. In the end, you have to do you. When seeking out a mentor for yourself, look out for who takes an interest in your work. You also need someone who is attentive and caring. But most importantly, you need to find someone who displays the kinds of attributes that you would like to have as part of your own academic identity. Hi, I'm Preman Rajalingam. I'm the director for the Center for Teaching, Learning and Pedagogy at the Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. As part of my role, um, I do quite a bit of informal mentoring and I myself have benefited quite a lot from um, mentors throughout my own career. Uh, when I reflect on the process, um, it occurs to me that while many mentoring sessions start formally, some of the greatest benefits of a mentoring type relationship are the informal benefits and the informal meetings which spring out of the formal mentoring structure. Allow me to share two stories from mentors who have affected my own uh, life uh, and my own professional development. Uh, firstly, um, uh, John Logren, who was my PhD supervisor, obviously a very structured, formal mentoring setup, right, uh, with a very tangible goal at the end. But some of the greatest benefits of that relationship were outside the PhD supervision itself. Um, you know, John at that time was Dean of the 
College of Education at Monash University. And as a very busy university leader, he still made time to meet me whenever he was in Singapore. Over the years, we've met many times for conversations, beers, um, in cafes. Uh, and some of the most influential advice he's given me is career advice. Uh, sometimes challenging directions I was taking my career in. I haven't always heeded all, his, all of his advice, but all of it's definitely shaped the way I've approached my career and got me thinking. Uh, another mentor I'd like to mention um, is uh, my friend and uh, you know, late colleague John Collins. Uh, John Collins uh, was a visiting professor at my first educational job and through many, many conversations, um, he challenged my perceptions of research and education. At that time, I was an engineer, uh, you know, trying to get his feet wet in, in teaching and learning. Uh, and some of his uh, deep insights and even verbatim phrases I still use as I talk about the scholarship of teaching and learning, as I compare quantitative and qualitative research. Where a lot of these outcomes were informal as well. And perhaps at that time, neither of us even acknowledged we were in a mentor-mentee relationship, but that's definitely what I'd call it. Uh, I tried to apply some of these insights into my own uh, role as a mentor. Uh, as director for the Center of Teaching and Learning, I, I informally mentor many of my colleagues uh, in their own teaching and learning practice. I have some formal mentoring relationships with students, but again, you know, I think uh, being open to conversations outside the formal mentoring structure about career, life, family, options, philosophy, I think these are really where the, um, the real value of mentoring is. Hello, I am Dr. Brian Hansen, Ombuds for the Graduate School Community at Virginia Tech. As the Ombuds for a Graduate School at an R1 University, my day-to-day -day conversations with visitors predominantly center around the disconnect with expectations experienced between mentors and mentees. This is not surprising as intentional approaches to establishing the mentoring relationship is not part of our experience and we often are not in tune with the inherent factors that influence the dynamics within these relationships. Given the mutual benefits when these relationships are successful and the shared consequences that occur when these relationships falter, I encourage the students and faculty I work with to be mindful of the following strategies to build a strong foundation for the mentor-mentee relationship. Strategy one entails engaging in intentional self-reflection on your own needs and expectations within this relationship. This self-reflection is best accomplished by reflecting upon four aspects of the working relationship. First, reflect upon your goals and needs in this relationship. We need to start by understanding how we anticipate our goals will be achieved through this relationship. When it comes to the needs we may need to consider, what level of guidance is necessary for you to succeed in this relationship as a student? Or from the faculty perspective, what level of autonomy is expected in the student? Or what level of skills are you needing from this student to help you achieve your goals? Second, reflect upon your communication tendencies and preferences. How do you typically communicate with others? 
Do you prefer to talk face-to-face -face when you have questions or a need to convey important information? Or do you prefer written communication where you can thoughtfully put together your ideas, questions, and requests? Third, reflect upon how you typically respond to conflict within working relationships. Do you put other needs, others' needs first and accommodate as much as you can? Do you tend to avoid or ignore conflict? Or are you the type of person that puts your needs and interests first and tends to assert them when conflict arises? Finally, reflect upon your approach to organizing priorities and determining deadlines. We all have different ways we do this, and there is not necessarily a best way, but we need to at least identify what tends to achieve success for us when accomplishing tasks. Once you have your reflection accomplished, the next strategy is to collaboratively establish a foundation for your mentoring relationship and identify ways you can best work together through a shared understanding of each other's needs, preferences, and tendencies. Important topics in this conversation include one, discussing and developing shared expectations for the working relationship by expressing your needs. Two, discuss both of your academic and career goals to see how your relationship is able to help you both make progress in attaining those goals. Three, define clear expectations around the roles you will play and the specific duties that you are both expected to fulfill. Four, explore your preferences and tendencies when it comes to communication and conflict engagement. And five, establish an understanding of your personal approaches to deadline and milestone development. It is important to recognize within this conversation that while we all may have differing goals, preferences, and tendencies, these relationships can still be successful. The key is understanding these preferences and tendencies in these relationships so we don't operate under unchecked assumptions and build resentment when our approaches create conflict. Hello, my name is Tara Brabazon, and I'm the Dean of Graduate Studies and Professor of Cultural Studies at Charles Darwin University in the very north of Australia. Mentoring seems a salve for an injury we never name. The selfishness, the nastiness, the shallowness, the rudeness that manifests in higher education as a workplace, as an industry, has always got to me. We have the privilege of teaching tens of thousands of undergraduates and maybe three or four hundred postgraduates in our career. We can influence the future of so many people. Yet so often what happens in universities is petty and pathetic. Self-absorption rules. Yet instead of reading and thinking, the two most common words I hear in my office are mentoring and networking but I think both are an attempt to provide a human face to the precariat workforce in higher education at the moment. Gortsky described mentoring as, quote, code language for assimilating, end of quote. Indeed, mentoring is a form of socialisation, but that socialisation suggests there are normative pathways through higher education. The sector is now so diverse that that generalizability is really debatable. I think the word mentoring is a misnomer. It is an empty bucket which carries some baggage from 1970s management theory, which, can I say, was not the high point of intellectual life. <laughs> Therefore, where do we go to from here? 
Ask yourself, if you want a mentor, what are you actually asking for? Is it support? Is it help? The point about higher education at the moment is that most of us are just stunned most of the time. I understand this. At least three times a day, I pause and say, wow, how did we get here? But the point of a university was a place where the best and the brightest gather to create new knowledge and provide the foundation, the springboard for the next generation so that new knowledge can be created again and again and again. In our crisis of purpose in our universities, it has a lot of similarities with the crisis in the US business sector in the 1970s when women and minorities entered corporations. A solution is to mentor disenfranchised precariat workers so that they believe in Oz, they believe in the project of a university, and they don't see the man behind the curtain. Ask yourself, really, what do you need when you say you want a mentor? Do you need a mate to offload stress and bad stuff? Well, you know what? Get yourself a mate. Do you want career advice? Well, make an appointment with somebody you admire, ask some clear questions, and then assess if their answers offer any resonance to your context. Always remember that all advice comes from one particular context and is moved to another, and therefore we must assess the generalizability and the transferability of that advice. Ensure that it is knowledge-based and evidence-driven and come to any professional relationship with a clear sense of what you want to achieve. Always ask yourself when you're being mentored, how much of yourself, your aspirations, your goals, you are losing when you deploy words like mentoring and networking. If your goal is to fit in, to be compliant, then you know what? Mentoring may get you there. If your goal is innovation, imagination, and the development of new knowledge, then you may have to take risks. And yes, you may just have to find your own path. Kia ora, or hello. I'm Barbara Kensington-Miller, and I'm an Associate Professor at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. I've supervised many postgraduate students, either with their master's degrees or PhDs. There are three things I consider important for supervision. First, pastoral care. I always begin meetings inquiring about their welfare and listening to the pressures and challenges they may be negotiating. This is particularly important for my international students being away from home and often adjusting to a different culture. I strongly believe we have a duty of care for these students and will take time for them. Second, setting expectations. As a supervisor, I make sure my students understand my expectations of the supervision process and use a student-focused approach that is collaborative. In this way, we set goals together that are timely, realistic and achievable. The student then takes ownership of the agenda for meetings and reports back post-meeting on what the outcomes were. I will provide timely and constructive feedback on written work, affirming what they have done, but constantly challenging them to be research-informed, providing evidence to back statements and claims. Third and last, the hard questions. I help my students to see the bigger picture with their research. To do this, 
I will ask the hard questions to make them think deeper about what they are researching and why it is important. I call these my so what questions to enable them to become strong researchers, rigorous and robust in their approach, focused on evidence and aware of any limitations or assumptions. I will reflect, question and nudge them to be articulate so they can confidently and competently contribute to academic debates and professional dialogue to increase their ability to engage with complex issues. In this way, I care about their careers beyond the supervision. Thank you for listening. Tēnā koutou katoa. Hello all, my name is Elena Riva and uh, I am the Head of Department at IATL, the Institute for Advanced Teaching and Learning at the University of Warwick in the UK. My top tip as a mentor is really rooted in my experience as mentee at the University of Milan in the Chemistry Department. Um, I really flourish if I think back to that time when my mentor really trusted me and provided me with an um, opportunity to trial but also to error, to make mistakes. It really normalised for me the fact that making mistakes and failing is very much part of the research process in science, but this is true, of course, for every discipline. The way in which this was normalised really liberated me to uh, pursue my idea and to try um, everything that I thought was worth trying, of course, and gave me and this gave a solid platform for my future successes. I really try to do so the same as a mentor, and I do that in several ways. For example, I'm really transparent in sharing both my successes, but also everything that didn't work. I share with my mentees the side B of my curriculum, the less shiny one that is made up of experiments that didn't work, ideas that were not so clever, um, as I thought, or a paper that were rejected, jobs application that was not successful, and hopefully this really gives them um, that uh, that feeling of trust that they need uh, for trialing their own ideas without the fear of making mistakes. I also make a point around work-life balance. I believe, I truly believe that there is not Happy academic life if it doesn't go hand in hand with, hand in hand with a sustainable work-life balance. Therefore, I openly discuss it and I make sure that um, my mentees, as well as myself, always double check that everything we do as part of academic life, it is indeed sustainable in terms within our broader uh, life. I hope this is useful. Thank you so much for listening and take care, all. Hello, this is Gabriel Paquette. I'm Associate Provost for Academic Affairs and Faculty Development at the University of Maine. I have three tips for mentees in search of a mentor. First, know what you'd like from the mentorship relationship. Do you want advice with regard to promotion and tenure, with regard to research productivity, teaching, etc.? Make sure that you know what you want. I found a useful first step is to use the mentorship map offered by the National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity, NCFDD. The second tip is to recognize that mentorship is a two-way street. It's a reciprocal relationship. It's not one in which the mentor dispenses wisdom received passively by the mentee. Instead, it's an ongoing conversation in which perspectives are shared 
um, and new insights are developed. Third, make sure that you balance any uh, intramural mentorship, that is mentorship that you receive at your home university with external mentorship. That balance of perspectives will be very useful. I've benefited in my own life from having a number of extraordinary mentors. I'll mention just two. The first, Richard Drayton, Rhodes Professor of History at King's College London, was my graduate supervisor, but really shepherded me through many different aspects of my academic career, especially in the pre-tenure period. Another mentor of mine in the pre-tenure period was Michael Hanshard, now the University of Pennsylvania. What Richard and Michael both had in common and have in common is that they treated me, even though we were at very different stages in our career and I was very much junior, um, as an equal, as a partner, um, recognizing that academic careers would look very different um, at different points in history and that it wasn't simply enough to follow a path that perhaps they had followed. And that openness to ideas and that support made all the difference to me in my career. Hello, I'm Lukas Lischinski. I'm a professor at the Faculty of Law and Justice at UNSW Sydney in Australia. The best thing I've ever heard from a mentor uh, to me was to allow others the opportunity to help you. Um, and to specify what the context was, I had just finished the manuscript to a book um, and I had sent it to the publisher and the publisher had asked me for information on who would write the blurbs uh, on the back cover. And I sent them that information. And then months later, when I got the manuscripts back from uh, copy editing, um, they asked me again and I said, yes, I submitted this information to you a while ago. Um, and they said I didn't have any more time to procure those blurbs, that I would have to do it myself and I would only have uh, two weeks to have the blurbs sent to them. And, you know, asking someone to read an entire book and write a blurb about it is a big ask uh, when it's only two weeks. So I was about to give up and have nothing on the back cover. Um, and then one of my mentors said to me, give others the opportunity to help you. So I did reach out to the people that I wanted to have on a blurb, my top picks. Um, and I was thrilled when they all came through and they sent me these really nice blurbs. So I think the, the, the big lesson here is, yes, let others help you and don't be afraid to ask because at most they'll say no and then you can move on. But at least you did not preclude their no for them. Um, and, um, and people are out there. People want to help you. People want to do good things for you. Just give them the chance. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.